1: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552.
2: Hello, and welcome to this edition of The Gist of Freedom. I am Shelley Gaines, your host, and tonight we will have Dr. Ishmael Griffin on to discuss his program called ELAM, and I just want to find out if Dr. Griffin is on the line. Dr. Griffin?
1: Yes, I'm on the line. Can you hear me? Hi
2: there. Yes, I can. I can hear you very well. How are you this evening?
1: I am doing fine.
2: That's wonderful. So I want to welcome you to the show, and we want to talk a little bit more about the um, program ELAM. I want you to tell us all about it, um, what ELAM stands for, and I know you do great work um, assisting uh students to get their medical education um, in Cuba, I believe. So could you discuss more about this program or what it represents?
1: Certainly. Um, First, I want to clarify something. Um, ELAM stands for the Latin American School of Medicine, and the medical school program is actually a medical school program, one of several numerous medical schools that is um, run by the Cuban government. Okay. Um, In about 1999, Fidel Castro had made a journey to the United States hosted by the Congressional Black Caucus. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And in that visit, he was um, visiting parts of Alabama and Mississippi, otherwise known as the Black Belt. It's called the Black Belt not because of the obvious fact that it is a region of our country which has uh, a preponderance of people of color, African-descended people, such as myself, but um, it's also one of the poorest regions in the country, and it's known for its black soil. Um, The historic significance of the region was that that was where many uh, African slaves were tortured uh, and bought because it was a farming region. And so the ratio of of black people in Mm -hmm. that part of the country has always remained in the higher levels. Well, Fidel Castro was being hosted by the Congressional Black Caucus, uh one of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh Congressman Benny Thompson, mm-hmm. uh suggested to Fidel Castro uh asked a ask question and he said he would like um it would wouldn't it be nice if there were uh, uh physicians uh, physician service in the United States to serve the black belt as um as Fidel Castro had in Cuba. As you know, I mean, and many people don't know, Cuba has one of the highest ratios of doctors to patients in the world, and no. uh, health care there is completely free.
2: No, I never realized they had that many physicians in Cuba. That's wonderful.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh, Fidel Castro responded, certainly. Mm-hmm. And he suggested that he would um, educate. Uh, at that time, he said, I believe it was, um, A Mm -hmm. um, 1,000 doctors uh, from the United States, and the initial descriptor was black physicians. And I think at that time he also said Latino physicians uh, Mm -hmm. from poor communities that would come back to the very same communities in the United States. Most of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus who were there um, found the the offer quite ridiculous and um, Mm -hmm. paid no attention to it. On a second visit to Cuba Mm
0: -hmm. that was
1: hosted by the Congressional Black Caucus, the offer was reiterated, and uh, that's where this journey of now somewhere up to 180 U.S. students who have uh, studied in Cuba under a free scholarship program began.
2: Wonderful. Wow. So now, okay, so the idea was um, kind of born after that second visit by the Black Caucus. So... Now, how do you know how these students were recruited, and and when did they actually the program begin, where the students actually started going to Cuba for their medical education?
1: Yeah, now it, the the Latin American School of Medicine was actually mm-hmm. founded in 1999 as a result of hurricanes Mitch and George.
0: Okay. And mm-hmm. it
1: was Cuba's attempts to respond to that disaster response in the Caribbean, and it okay. started with several Caribbean countries that Cuba had uh, taken on and given their medical students free scholarships to study.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: now it's become the largest medical school in the world with over uh, 120 uh, delegations from different countries, the United States being one of them. Um, so this program started in about 1999. Mm-hmm. Well, the program was was birthed in 1999. The first U.S. class uh, started Uh, in cuba and i believe it was 2001 okay um but there was one student who started and was given an advanced standing his name is dr cedric edwards Mm -hmm. so he started in the third year he was a student who had been in medical school in the united states and he Mm -hmm. transferred in so he actually became the first graduate from the latin american school of medicine in 2005
2: okay that's great Okay, so he became the first student that graduated. Now, I'm just curious. So when they come back to the United States, I know that a lot of times you have to take um, board certifications, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. As with all As with all doctors who train internationally, when you return mm-hmm. to the United States, you take a series of three tests.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: they're called the United States Medical Licensure Examination.
0: Mm-hmm. And there
1: is steps one, uh, basic science knowledge steps, 2CK, clinical knowledge, 2CS, clinical science, uh, and then you're eligible to apply for a residency training, a postgraduate medical training beyond medical school. And right. Then there's one other further exam once you start training here, uh, step three, and then you're able to be licensed in, in the United States.
2: Okay. So then you have to, so if you're educated, say, so the students who took advantage of that education in Cuba, mm-hmm. say they would come back to the United States, they would have to sit for their boards, correct? Yeah, and then get a and then get a residency.
1: Exactly. Yeah. The, exactly. The and the okay. stipulation, and the only stipulation, and it's a mm-hmm. it's a stipulation which is on an honor system, is that the medical students students who go to Cuba, on mm-hmm. a free scholarship, return to their home communities to serve in those communities. And most of the um, students who go to school are black and Latino. About eighty five okay. percent of the student body. Uh, Conservative estimates, probably even more now. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: they're mostly from underserved backgrounds or what I would call non traditional backgrounds, but in the sense that there's so few black and brown physicians in the United States. um, Being black and brown, anything in the medical field is non traditional. So most of them come from non traditional backgrounds or
0: Mm -hmm. backgrounds
1: that you wouldn't, that are not necessarily the backgrounds that you see people having and when they go to medical school and become doctors in the United States. Okay. Okay.
2: So now my question is, how did you get involved with
1: it? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, first of all, I'm a graduate of a U.S. school. Uh, mm-hmm. My alma mater is the Charles R. Drew School of Medicine,
0: which okay. is one of the
1: four historically black
0: mm-hmm. medical
1: colleges in the United States. I didn't start at Charles R. Drew. I actually started at a medical school in Northern California uh, mm-hmm. called UCSF. Okay. I was a very poor student from inner city, New York, one of the poorest districts in Brooklyn, East New York, mm-hmm. uh, first in my family to go to college. And when okay. I went to UCSF after having been selected to literally the every single one of the top 12 medical schools in this country, Harvard, mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins, I had a very difficult time. It was a cultural clash. I had uh, uh, survived many challenges in, in school and done very well at the college level.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: I wasn't really prepared for the classism uh, that existed on the medical school level. And so I, I stayed at UCSF, University of California, San okay. Francisco, for several years. And,
2: okay. okay, Dr. Griffith, I, Dr. Yeah. Griffith I, just, I don't want to interrupt, but I I want you to talk a little bit about that now. You're saying at these medical schools there's a, a classism that you Yeah, up against? Yeah, yeah talk even, a little bit about that.
1: Even even amongst black and Latino students or, mm-hmm. or, or underrepresented students in medical schools, most of the people that go to school in the United States are from wealthy backgrounds. Okay. A uh, significant percentage are from backgrounds uh, where they're children of physicians, lawyers, professionals, et cetera. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter you know your ethnicity or the background you come from. But in the um late eighties when I applied to medical school it was fairly unusual to have a, a black man uh going to mm-hmm. medical school who wasn't from a a very well situated meaning financially situated background. Hmm. So I, I was definitely an outlier. I mean seriously. Um okay. and um there are certain things about training at that level that have a lot to do with the socialization pro- uh, 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 process and privilege and money that than you would ever imagine uh, i i went to medical school without a car mm-hmm. without a computer and um and without the the kinds of support that it takes uh financially uh socially to get through medical school so th- those years in medical school for me the initial try was very very difficult
2: Okay, okay, and then you so you went and back to the so is, is that when you transferred then to yeah. Charles Drew I, I,
1: yeah I stayed or, in okay. I stayed in medical school till about 1991 or
0: so
2: mm-hmm. I
1: went out a couple of years There was an agency in California at that time called the Bay Area Black Black Health Consortium
0: mm-hmm. and a and
1: a stalwart uh, an icon of a gentleman Mr Adelbert Campbell who was a pioneer in black progressive health movements in California. And I went to work for him as a social worker okay. in East Oakland.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and at that point, I transferred into the Charles R. Drew UCLA program, which is uh, an extension of the UCLA program, 24 students who study and train in, in Compton and in Watts, uh, the Watts section of Los okay. Angeles.
2: Okay. okay. And how was that experience for you?
1: It was a night and day experience. Um, when I went to Drew, I was very supportive. Um, mm-hmm. It was a fit, both socially and, mm-hmm. and and in a lot of ways. Charles R. Drew being one of the four historically black medical colleges, there were many black students there, many of them who had trained at Howard and Meharry, and mm-hmm. at that time, the new medical school, Morehouse. And they were there uh, getting postgraduate training and uh, going mm-hmm. to medical school. The, the class at Drew was at that time probably if twenty four students, uh, twenty three of us were either black, Latino, or other underrepresented.
2: Okay. Okay. And so, where did you do your residency?
1: I ended up moving back to New York City and I did mm-hmm. my residency in emergency medicine at uh, Saint Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in in, in, okay. in in Upper Manhattan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In Lower at- Harlem or Upper Manhattan, as one would say.
2: Okay. So oh, and did you find your your experience um at Charles Drew helped you with your residency? You felt that um
1: it, it, it was it think- was a wonderful experience, but the thing that it did okay. for me working in the largely poor black community in Watts, mm-hmm. largely poor mm-hmm. black and Hispanic was I um saw the light. Um I was always committed to coming back to my home community,
0: mm-hmm. but it,
1: it was a natural fit. That's when I realized that you know, as much as I trained to be a physician, staying in communities that need black and brown communities was was where I want to be. It, it was a it was an absolute fit. I love okay. the faculty at Drew, I mm-hmm. love the students, and most of all, I love the community I was working with. I was I was studying at a time it was at the height of the the gang war between the Crips and the Bloods.
2: Wow, and we there was saw a, lot a lot of
1: yeah. And the hospital that the training was at was Martin Luther King Hospital Center, which is now closed. Uh, mm-hmm. Regretfully, but it was a wonderful experience, and the medical school still goes on, but the hospital has since closed.
2: Okay, okay. So then you come back. You come back to New York. You do your residency. Came back to I, New York,
1: did my residency,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, passed my board exam, became board okay. certified, and then I started mm-hmm. going on faculties. Okay. I went on, uh, joined the faculty initially at the University of Mississippi. Mhm uh as a core faculty person in in the emergency medicine residency training program mm-hmm. and then University of alabama and so back to how how I came involved in with the medical school project, I was at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, okay. when they started a residency program at the Seoul Trauma Center in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Birmingham, Alabama is in conservative estimates about 70% African American and a large part of the city is poor. They started a residency program in emergency medicine mm-hmm. in the only trauma center where, where people came to to receive a certain level of care in a state-funded hospital. Mm-hmm. And in the initial class of the emergency medicine training program, there was not a single black or Hispanic person. Yeah. Um, every single one of the um, doctors that started in that program in the initial year were, did, it, let's just put it this way, it did not reflect the city of Birmingham.
2: Okay, wow. So I,
1: I soon found myself in a big battle with the chairman to um, to push for the first two black and first Latino and first Asian residents in the program at, at Emergency Medicine Residency Training Program at University of Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was on my way out, as a result of being successful in that battle, but not successful for myself professionally as a result of the battle with the chairman. There okay. was a student who came to the University of Alabama who was a second-year medical student at Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And she spoke at the School of Public Health. I found out about the uh, medical school program in Cuba, and it was a natural fit. Found out that the program was supported by the Congressional Black Caucus.
0: Mm-hmm. Found
1: out that it meant training black and brown doctors to serve black and brown communities in the United States.
0: Okay. And it was
1: consistent with everything that I had trained myself for and committed myself to since my graduation from Drew.
2: Okay. Okay, so then you so are you on the on the board at that school, the Latin Medical uh, medical school. Well
1: or? um the, the agency that actually mm-hmm. picked up the admissions for the Latin American School of Medicine uh mm-hmm. was an agency uh, called the International Foundation for Community Organization. Okay. It's located on 145 Fifth Street in, in Harlem, Oh and okay. it was founded by um, another famous Black pastor, uh, Adolfo Campbell. It was a pastor, but a, a very famous Black pastor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: social worker, a warrior named Reverend Lucius Walker. Okay. And Lucius Walker uh, is probably in the Caribbean uh, considered, in many ways, equivalent to Martin Luther King. He was a black pastor, black black pastor, mm-hmm. who sat at the table at the first um, discussions about uh, reparations for black people in the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: traveled to uh, uh, parts of Central America during the war on the contras, and he started a friendship caravan to the mostly, as most people don't know, black country of Cuba, at, at mm-hmm. a time when our government decided to uh, conduct the most atrocious uh, blockade against the people's of Cuba.
0: Right. Okay. His
1: uh, agency took up the admissions pro- uh, uh, pro- process and I joined the admit the the admissions committee and advisory okay. board for the medical school in 2007.
2: Okay, in 2007. Okay. And you've been there ever since?
1: Well, I've recently come off that committee, but I remain heavily involved with the school
0: mm-hmm.
2: in terms
1: of advising um uh, graduates of the program, students of the mm-hmm. program, and getting into residency. And I've probably become the sole physician in the United States, not sole, but the mm-hmm. major physician in the United States I'm sole because I'm probably one of, well, I'm probably the only one that does a major part of the advising for the graduates to get back into residency in the United States.
2: Right, which is key. Mm-hmm. Which is key. Okay, so now. So you have you're part of this admissions program. So how how does that work? Does uh, a student come out of um, of, of undergrad decides they you know want to go to medical school? They what, submit applications. What do they do through this well, agency to
1: they, they to submit an application to IFCO or the Interreligious Foundation. They have to be Foundation. at least eighteen years old. Mm-hmm. Um, they've made a requirement that you have to fulfill. The same pre medical requirements as uh, in the United States, but you don't have to have an undergraduate degree you do have to you do. Have a, no you do have to have a year of biology, a year of chemistry, a year of physics, so the same pre medical requirements because eventually when you license they want your kind of profile to look the same as any u s doctor
0: right. you
1: apply to the um to to the interreligious foundation mm-hmm. you are generally brought to New York on an interview.
0: You interview
1: with a a board of people. I was on that board for many years. And then um, they they give you a tentative admission. Your application then goes to Cuba, Mm -hmm. and then Cuba makes its decision, and then the students are off to Cuba for six years of medical study, free medical study. Wow.
2: Okay, I think that deserves to be (laughs) repeated one more time for those listening because – uh, that's quite unbelievable. I'm sitting here like, uh, wow, because I was a pharmaceutical representative, and I've never heard anything like this before in my past. So it's very interesting. Okay, so let's review. So then they go to, is there a website for the Interreligious Foundation? Yeah,
1: you can Google IFCO. Uh, okay. Uh, the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization. Okay. It's All on right. 145th Street in Harlem. Okay. Right next door to Convent Avenue Baptist Church.
2: Okay, all right. Okay, so they go in there, they submit their application. Mm-hmm. Then does does everyone get an interview, or just you, you review the application first?
1: Well, the committee reviews the applications
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they uh, decide who to interview, and mm-hmm. then they invite you to New York. Now, here's the thing. Okay. Uh, I talked about uh, non traditional applicants to medical school. The yes. thing about the program is that. Um, it picks people with the commitment, and it does not do what most U.S. medical schools do, and deny students the ability to move forward and be physicians based upon um, the typical um, sometimes um, uh, uh, process in the United States, which is which is really a process just to throw hurdles in front of people. Okay, um, if, if you know. What happens to a lot of young people, a lot of youth in most colleges, um, first of all, it's expensive. So if you're poor and you're going to college, mm-hmm. right. um, most poor students work. And, yeah. and the demands of of getting the grades on a pre-medical level uh, to get into medical school sometimes can be a challenge. So the, the committee at IFCO, which is comprised of progressive peoples, a number mm-hmm. of them uh, black and Latino, Okay. And who can really look at those applications and really look into them? It does a very different thing. We first of all look at the student's commitment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, uh, and, and their history of work, community-based work. Okay. Um, their uh, their commitment to justice causes, and I can okay. tell you that some of the um, students that get into medical school to go to Cuba would Mm -hmm. never see light of day in U.S. medical schools.
2: Okay. Is it just because they just couldn't make it in there to begin with, or is it because the whole socialization process that you talked about in these medical schools would hamper them also, or a combination of both?
1: Well, I don't know of a medical school in the United States that would, let's say, um, um, accept a student who could write on an application that they are part of the uh, all African Peoples' Movement. You know, okay. it's it, it's a difference <laughs> okay. in terms of
0: okay.
1: of the filters that are used in U.S. medical schools. I mean, the the student body at 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 Elam, the U.S. Mm-hmm. contingent, is 85 mm-hmm. percent Black and Latino, mm-hmm. and the kind of political mindset of many of the students and their commitment to justice causes are very different. Okay. And to be able to write that. And to have that respected in the medical school admissions process is really um, uh, quite a challenge. If you apply to U.S. medical schools, um, okay, I understand. know. So, so it's you know, you know, you know, anyone writing about significant involvement in poor black and Latino communities and mm-hmm. and having that be the reason for their going to medical school—that's unusual. And, right. And there's a there's a bias against that when you apply to U.S. medical schools they are looking for cookie cutter. They're looking for the organic chemistry with an A. They're looking yes. for an Ivy League school, whatever that
0: mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. And they're
1: looking for most things that, that sort of subtly indicate that you're a person that comes from a wealthy background.
2: Yes. I understand. hmm I understand.
1: And they pick okay. up on that and, and they regenerate themselves. But, you know, a different thing is done you know, through the admissions process to a lab. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, so with your with your with your uh, agency and organization here with this admissions process, excuse me. You know, like you said, you have a wide, a varied group of uh, personalities and interests that can actually go and get a medical education. But your primary um, concerns are, uh, again, their I guess what what did you say? Their work ethic and their their commitment? commitment.
1: Their commitment, their
2: commitment
1: to, yes. to mm-hmm. underserved, underrepresented communities. Okay, their and then commitment.
2: of course they have. Yeah, and of course you have to somehow judge their their um, academic ability too, because you know certainly, those courses yeah. are difficult. They're not certainly. easy. Yeah,
1: certainly. Yeah. But let's just put it this way: um, a C plus in organic chemistry because you were working one semester trying to, to support yourself and perhaps to, you know bring money into your home
0: because mm-hmm. you're
1: from a working class background is not going to exclude you from receiving the scholarship to study medicine in Cuba, it would exclude you from a great, probably all, uh, most of the medical schools in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And so by definition, the way things are set up in the United States in terms of getting into medical school is very much adverse to poor people. Yeah. It's way towards those people with the financial and the social resources to jump those hurdles. Mm Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. jump them and jump each and every one, you know what I mean, with flying colors.
2: Okay. So now I'm curious, but when you send these these uh students down to Cuba, um, is there do they do is there someone do you take them down there personally or do they just is there someone in Cuba that's there yeah, they, to help them? Okay.
1: Yeah, um, uh IFCO brings them down. Uh, okay. I have been part of the admissions committee and I've traveled to Cuba um probably about five times, and I visited and talked with members of the faculty and and worked with students and gone down to advise them in terms of their course of study and their transition back to the U.S.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: um, there's a network of physicians in the U.S. uh, and non-physicians as well that give them advice in terms of transitioning back to the U.S.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, are they required to learn Spanish, being that it is in Cuba?
1: The curriculum in Cuba is entirely in Spanish. Okay. And you are a part of, and you, and the hospital in which the students eventually do their clinical work is actually in a part of Havana which is widely known as the um, the black community in Havana.
0: Mhm.
1: Um, one of the things that happened to me—I I laugh when I say this—is that um, my impression of Cuba was based upon what I thought of in terms of growing up thinking about the Cuban the uh, Cuban community in Miami.
2: Absolutely. And I remember I know the exactly first, what you saying.
1: The mm-hmm. first time I got off the plane in Havana,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I, I stopped and I had to think, well, let me see, am I in Jamaica? <laughs>
0: <Am> <laughs> really? I in Brooklyn? Really?
1: Am I in oh, Brooklyn? Wow. Yeah. Um Cuba is a country um that is very multi-ethnic and has a, a large African history such as of descended peoples the history of African descended people in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now I remember being on a street in um in Havana in this section of Cuba I talked about in Havana that I talked about on Martin Luther King Boulevard uh at the Iglesia Bautista, the Ebenezer Baptist Church on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Havana. Sound familiar? <laughs> and on Sunday yeah, morning and seeing about six or seven black women with church hats going to church. And what people don't know is that before the blockade, Cuba and the United States had a very close history. Right. And so a lot of the culture in Cuba, when you really get down there and you really watch it, Mm
2: -hmm. is very
1: similar to the United States, and it makes you kind of – it stops you in your tracks because they never tell us that in school.
2: Yes. No, you don't know – no, you never learn that. That is true. And and me personally I didn't realize there were black Cubans until I saw the Olympic team.
1: <laughs> and I said, Oh, okay. If you went to it, Cuba if you went to Cuba <laughs> and asked if there's black Cuba well, you wouldn't ask that question if you got off the plane. As soon as you got off the plane you would quickly know, you would quickly dis- discern that there are
2: definitely black people in Cuba. <laughs> oh boy, that's so interesting. So mm-hmm. now, do they, do you when the students go down there? Do they have the difficulty trying to learn Spanish because they're learning medical terms in Spanish? So it, it, to me, it seems like the program would lend itself more to maybe Latino students here in the United States, being that they have, a, you know, a, a leg up on the language
1: issue well, it's kind of interesting a, a good number of the students who go to the school are actually afro latino okay um, mm-hmm. um a good number of the students um through just the by where they lived, like I knew mm-hmm. Spanish because I grew up in East New York in okay. a multicultural community, so they know spanish
0: uh-huh. and
1: um and you, you they they you go to a very intensive medical education program in the first two years where you learn Spanish. Um, oh, and, okay. And we had one graduate from the Bronx, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she described it this way. She said, you know, she said, Dr. Griffin, she said, I lived all these years in the Bronx, and I knew I learned how to hustle. Mm-hmm. She said, so when I got down there, she said, I had no money. So I had to learn how to how to survive. So she learned mm-hmm. Spanish. She just learned Spanish talking to people. And I asked her, how did you do that? She said, well, you know, it was like it was in the Bronx. She said, I knew a few words, put it together, got it together. She's now an emergency medicine resident in Newark, New Jersey.
2: Oh, wonderful. Isn't yeah. that something? That's that commitment you're talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. And so, it, you great. know,
1: you're dealing with a student body that is, is traditional in the way in that they are hard workers, mm-hmm. survivors, sharp, right. and they are committed. That's great.
2: So now, on offhand, do you kind of have an idea of how many students of you know, actually come through the program uh, through, like, 2000? Yeah, there's been
1: about uh, about 120 graduates. Many of them are in process of taking their exams. Um, the mm-hmm. medical school right now enjoys the highest percentage, perhaps the highest percentage rate of, of residency acceptance of any international school in the United States. Um, oh. Our latest numbers is that uh, we have a 93% acceptance rate into residency.
0: That's uh, wonderful.
1: It, it 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 is it's something that hasn't gotten gotten out on the airwaves or in the academic literature yet, but it's it's a shocker because many of these students were students that um if they had applied uh when they were applying to medical school, most US medical schools would have probably um not accepted them. Not mm-hmm. because they couldn't have done the work, but because they were kind of selecting out other criteria. Right, I understand. You know, uh-huh. one of the things that I learned, um, and I learned this personally, is that it, it, assessing people's competence, and this is for all black youth, black and brown uh-huh. youth, and people from uh-huh. uh, backgrounds of challenge and struggle, uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. you need
1: to put on special lenses before you deny someone. You have to really look at the person, the context. And, and God is a, is a God that, that is, a, is, a, is a justice-loving God. And brilliance and intelligence and will come in all different shapes and sizes female Mm -hmm. male latino black white and so but the thing is is that when you're dealing with young people and you're trying to assess their ability to make it you have to put on the lens you have to use the perspective of where they're coming from and let me give you an example um when i uh was on the admissions committee i would oftentimes come across applications of young women Mm -hmm. um and particularly with young Latino women in in a culture that's heavily socialized into having children and into, uh, you know, being married and things. It's usually a a standout when I find a young woman who continues to study biochemistry, continues to study her her pre-medical studies despite the fact that she has to work an extra job Mm -hmm. and um, she's going to a big alienating college. So that there in itself... Is someone that 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 immediately comes to my attention because I know how unusual that is. Somebody mm-hmm. else might see that same young woman and she might have gotten a C plus and said based upon the criteria that she wouldn't have made she wouldn't have made a good doctor.
0: But okay.
1: I've been involved in the process of working with a, 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 exactly such a young woman who's now a, a pediatrician at a hospital in the Bronx, Dr. Evelyn Erickson.
2: Wonderful. So Wonderful. you
1: you just it just depends upon the lens you put on. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I committed myself to when I graduated from Drew was to always be able to assess the situation of my people and my community with my own glasses and never letting uh, the settings in which I trained in
3: uh, mm-hmm. draw
1: the lines for me and being able to always reserve the right to make my own independent judgment. In, in the way, in the culturally consistent way that I know.
0: And I, and I do
1: that when I work, and I work by choice in predominantly mm-hmm. Latino and black communities, and I do that when I work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, and and one of the premises, the underlying premises of this program is to create a cadre of doctors who are out there who add meaningfully to the medical community in the United States because they have that different perspective. Because yeah. with that different perspective, everybody gets uh, equal health care. Everybody, because a doctor is an advocate.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it should be. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: It should be. Yes. That's 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 wonderful. I like the fact that, you know, you're making efforts out there to open up the opportunities so we can have other viewpoints. And, you know, people in the community need doctors that they can can connect with, you know, and... And this, uh, this definitely expands uh, what you have out there as far as, you know, the sensibilities of different people because they come from those areas. So they're, they're, they're more empathetic than maybe a physician who comes from a wealthy, wealthy environment, they're thrown in these poor environments, and they don't really have a clue how to interact with their patients.
1: Yeah, if I, if I may, when I, when I worked in Mississippi, I mm-hmm. was doing a lot of locums work in predominantly black communities just north of Jackson, Mississippi, Mm-hmm. And I always had this situation when I worked, uh, being a rare black physician working in Mississippi, where after everyone left the room, someone in the patient's family, black family, would come to me and say, and whisper, it's so good to see you.
0: <laughs> and I
1: never knew what that, and then they would ask me, well, you know, do you do you have a practice? And what I realized is that they were basically telling me that the context in which they were receiving it, they weren't comfortable. No. And, and I remember... The, 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 the dissonance of the, what happened when people saw me, the doctor, talking with the patients. So they would to be talking with Mr. Wilson, and everybody would mm-hmm. be looking shocked. Uh, the reason why I did that is because Mr. Wilson reminded me of my uncle. Yes. So I wasn't going to certainly practice medicine that way, and the patient saw it, and it created that kind of, of positive interchange.
0: Mm-hmm. And I've
1: been like that all of my professional career. Okay. and my job is to create other doctors who 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 basically erase the lines and who do that kind of thing who you know you know i have no problem breaking out como esta bien en
0: mm-hmm. tu mm-hmm.
1: mama you know and <laughs> you know and and and, and getting close in person with people and letting them know that i identify with them yes yeah. and, and at times when families want to leave against medical advice I honestly say to them no i don't like to do that that's for the hospital that that mm-hmm. that's legally saves the hospital, but you know, ethically, and I tell my patients this all the time. At the end of the day, when I take off this coat, I don't become Dr. Griffin. I become Ishmael, and I go home with a conscience. And I remember your face, and I don't. Wow. And I personally, I don't want to do anything wrong because, you know, that's going to stay with me. Yeah. And they're shocked. They look at me, and they're, my other th- thing I tell people, you know, I've worked in some large, uh, poor city hospitals. I remember one administrator got mad at me because I went out and I told some of the black people that came to the hospital, I said, please don't come in here and beg me. This is not the welfare office.
0: Uh-huh.
1: The administrator got upset. She turned red, and the pe- patient said, no, we understand them perfectly. What I was telling them was that what I expect of them and what they can expect of me is a professional exchange, and yeah. that some of the culturalization, the begging culturalization that black people are put in because we feel that we don't have, I don't want that from them. They can do yeah. that with the other doctors, but with Dr. Griffin, no. Mm-hmm. You don't have to beg me for nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. the patients got it, the administrators didn't get it.
2: <laughs> well, you know, they're coming from a whole different environment. <laughs> they thought you crossed some line. <laughs> they didn't realize no, the, the you patient- were, you were keeping it real. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This is not the welfare office. You can turn that off right there. That's what they do down at the welfare office. But this here is a hospital. <laughs>
0: oh, that is,
1: that is terrible.
2: <laughs> okay, so where are you at now, Dr. Griffith? What are you doing now?
1: I practice. I'm a director, a assistant director of a, of a 90,000-volume emergency department in the Bushwick area of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. and I'm very proud to be in another underserved, predominantly Latino and black community in that area, Wyckoff Heights Hospital.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm, I'm happy with what I do. I'm happy in the ways in which I'm able to make a difference, and I am so happy that all of my life that I've dedicated myself to this. And there are 10 of the ELM graduates that are hired there, and there are mm. two of the graduates that are starting residency training in the hospital.
2: Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So the, the cycle continues. That's great. Exactly. Yes, that's wonderful. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I mean, would you like to give that website again? Is there any final Um, closing words?
1: Okay. Yeah, I don't know the exact website to IFCO. I wasn't quite prepared for that. But if you uh, go into your web browser and you put in Interreligious Foundation for Community Mm -hmm. Organization or IFCO, I-F-C-O, you'll Mm -hmm. come to the webpage or just Google IFCO and Cuba. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And all of the information about applying to the medical school program will be there. Okay uh, it' will give you an application packet.
0: Mm-hmm. It'll
1: give you instructions as to what you need to prepare
0: mm-hmm. to get
1: into the program.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a
1: wonderful program. Um, we had our first graduate now starting a surgery training program at columbia uh, at Columbia Presbyterian in New York City. We have uh, residents uh, doing family medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles.
0: Mm-hmm. We have
1: uh, a graduate now doing uh, fellowship training in uh, infectious diseases at Kings County Hospital Center.
2: Wonderful. And
1: um, each year um, we have a, a, a numerous graduates who gain residency, and the graduates are doing excellently.
2: That's that's wonderful. Do they have little mini reunions or anything like that? That they that they all that they get together. I'm just throwing Well, it out there. we have,
1: we have the program. Has students from about forty-five different states,
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: the the uh, the state of origin of many of the people are, are across the United States. So it's kind of mm-hmm. hard. We we have uh, a large number of students from the New York City area, mm-hmm. and from the Bay Area, and from the Los Angeles area. And now okay. we're we're having large numbers of students from the Atlanta area.
0: Okay.
2: But
1: um, most of the reunioning happens locally with the people that that live in that region.
2: Okay. Wonderful, it's just nice that that you know you have that sense of community with with uh, you know your students that come through the program and everyone that's affiliated. just nice to know that, like you said, the cycle continues so is is that it anything else you'd like to add? It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Is there anything else you would like yeah, to add
1: yeah um I would just like to add that um you know we live in a country where um we have relations to other countries near us. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more that I have kind of worked and understood our neighbor to the south, I realized that somewhere in the um, 1950s when black people were being exploited and terrorized in Cuba, uh, they fought for their freedom Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and their autonomy. And I would like for many of the justice-minded people here in the United States to understand that that was not our fight and Mm -hmm. that that has more to do with capitalism and uh, the same kinds of ugly things that uh, created bad situations for my parents in North Carolina and Mississippi. And I had to really learn uh, through this process that, you know, as an African American in the United States, uh, what part of my government's uh, uh, international fiasco that I accept, and what part that I denounce. <coughs> Uh, i would uh encourage everyone to educate themselves about our neighbor to the south
0: mhm
1: and because uh it's important to become aware and conscious and sometimes not to accept things uh for granted and to educate ourselves and understand that the textbooks that we're given to read
0: mm-hmm.
1: m- may not tell us the truth
2: yes understood understood so again dr griffin it's been a pleasure Pardon me. Oh, is there a question? I'm sorry.
3: Yeah, I was holding on. I just wanted to oh, uh, say hello to Dr. Griffin.
2: Oh, sure, sure.
3: Yeah, yes. my name is Pianchi.
2: please.
3: I'm, I'm Pianchi. I'm here in the St. Louis area.
2: Okay. Do you, uh, you have a question?
3: Well, yeah, we know, uh, we know a lot about the program. I was familiar okay. with uh, Dr. Walker before he died.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, we have helped sponsor some students. The last one was Joya Mosley.
1: Oh, I I, of, I, I, I met Joya when I was down there recently. I, was, I just got back from Cuba. We talked with Joya about two weeks ago.
3: Yeah, she's out of Milwaukee. Yeah. Her sister was also involved. I think she had some problems. But, uh, no, it's an excellent program. The quality of doctorism is just as good as you would. You know, the one thing I like about that, that uh, program is that they uh, combine, you know, what you call local medicine along mm-hmm. with uh, I guess you can say, uh, what do we want to say? Uh, modern medicine. I really don't like to call it modern, but I'm pretty sure what you understand, that is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, but there's uh, no, in Cuba, there's no distinction between, see, in the United States, we have a very, uh very uh, destructively divided medical system. A, a doctor in Cuba is trained more like a, a person in the United States who would have an MD and a Master's of Public Health. Mm-hmm. And they also get trained in alternative. Uh, they, they get training in chiropractic,
3: and they get training in acupuncture.
0: Mm, okay, wow, yeah,
3: that's great. But we try. I'm going to have to get some more material because we we have uh, we have uh, lectures here in the community, and trying to get uh, more African American children involved in this program from the St. Louis area and and any place else where we can uh, get them involved in. Because, like you say, all the obstacles that exist that's uh, there that uh, you know throws up a wall, and, and it's an intimidating wall without you. But uh, I'm, ex- I think the program is excellent. Uh, the doctors are great. We have some doctors that's are uh, practicing here in the, Jewish, in the uh, Barnes the Jewish Complex, and uh, I mean, you, you're doing a good job yourself too, sir.
1: Yeah, listen, I would like to exchange information. Um, I, I work very closely with the uh, students in the program. I just came back from a meeting with some 80-odd students uh, lecturing about the transition back to the U.S. And I've been very involved with the program uh, from about since 2005, and I joined the advisory uh, committee at IFCO in 2007. Um, What I would say right now is the program needs continued support on many different levels, and whatever you can do to continue and to to maintain this pathway, it would be great. A lot of people don't know that you can't take anything for granted, and there are constantly threats to this wonderful offering that our neighbors to the south have have, have provided to children, our children here in the United States.
3: You're absolutely right. Uh, however, I can help you further than what I'm doing. I sure would would be more than willing to do so, Doctor Griffin.
1: Surely, and then when we get off, I'll try to I'll give you my information. Probably you can email me and call me. Um, uh, well,
3: if I hang up, I'm off the program. But you, can you right. give me your email information now? Uh
1: Yes, uh, my email address is m i g r i f is in Frank, f is in Frank, i n as in Nancy at msn dot com.
3: That's m i yeah.
1: g r i f is in Frank, f is in Frank, i n at msn dot com.
3: Okay, and let me get that with M I G R I. Okay, I got the rest of it. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I had those first two letters. I, I will send you an email and uh, we can talk further. And uh, I thank the host for having such a wonderful person and an excellent topic, too. Great.
2: Thank, thank, you. thank you so thank much you. for your participation. Sure. Dr. Griffin, thank you so much for providing that information. Again, it has indeed been my pleasure for you to have you on this edition of the gift of freedom and we wish you all the best and this organization all the best and sending out quality physicians in the united states and throughout the world and i just want to wish you a wonderful evening and if you have any final thoughts please feel free
1: uh no just thank you uh just support the program uh and and support our youth
2: And you're truly inspiration. It's so wonderful to hear that you continue to be there in our community fighting for, you know, our children. Thank you. Thank you. you. Okay. Good night. Good night. Again, this is Shelly Gaines signing off on this edition of Gifts of Freedom. Have a wonderful evening.